0: hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 10:18 through 44. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Maaseah, Eliezer, Jereb, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Emer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Haram, Maaseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pasher, Elioenai, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nethanel, Jozebad, and Elassa, Of the Levites, Jozebad, Shimei, Kaleah, that is, Kaleida, Pathahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telam, and Uri. And of Israel, of the sons of Parash, Ramiah, Isaiah, Melkaijah, Mijamin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Benaiah. Of the sons of Elam, Mattaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah; of the sons of Zatu, Elioenai, Eliashib, Mattaniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza; of the sons of Bibai were Jehuhanan, Hananiah, Zebai, and Athli; of the sons of Bani were Meshullam, Malick, Adaiah, Jeshub, Sheol, and Jeremoth; of the sons of Pehath Moab, Adna. Kielal, Benea, Maaseah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Haram, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashem, Matani, Matata, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. Of the sons of Benai, Maadi, Amram, Uel, Benea, Bediah, Kaluhi, Vinah, Meramith, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matani, Jeesu. Of the sons of Benuai, Shimei, Shalamiah, Nathan, Adiah, Magnatabai, Sheshai, Shari, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here um, at Sacred City. One of our favorite ways to learn God's word is to preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, even crazy stuff like we just read up there. All right? God put it in His book for a reason. And so we, want, we, we think it's important, and so we want to talk about it. So for the past five months, we have been studying the Old Testament book of Ezra, and today we're going to finish, finish it up in a rather anticlimactic way, right? A list of names. The reason this book ends this way is because it is actually the first half of one story. The second half continues in the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to work our way through that beginning in September when I'm back from sabbatical. The book of Ezra is a historical book. And when I say it's a historical book, what I mean is the Old Testament is basically broken up into four categories. Law, history, poetry, and prophets. And Ezra is part of the historical books. If you're just joining us today, I'm going to briefly catch us up to speed on this history. If you've been with us through this whole study, this is going to be a little bit of repetition for you. But I've purposefully repeated this brief history often in order for us to memorize it. I want it to get down into our bones. I want us to walk away from this time in Ezra and really know the history behind it. So we know our Old Testament better. We know our own story better. So let me start. Let me start at the Exodus, right? After God's chosen people had been delivered from 400 years of Egyptian slavery, God promised to give them their own land. This is the promised land. This land was presently occupied by several different pagan nations, nations who worshiped and served different gods who were much different than Yahweh, the one and only true God. So God commanded his people to drive these idol worshippers out of the land, smash all their idols, and never to intermarry with them unless they converted to worship the true God. However, the people disobeyed many times over. Sometimes they didn't smash the idols, sometimes they didn't drive out all the people, and sometimes they intermarried before a person was converted. As a result, God's people had become worldly. They'd become just like the surrounding nations. They were no longer holy and separate to the Lord. They had now become syncretistic and idolatrous. Syncretistic means you tried to synchronize false beliefs with true beliefs, okay? You try try to bring in what God says and you bring in what other God says. You become idolatrous. You want to put God up on your shelf and worship him like you worship all the other gods. Maybe just become a pluralist. Oh, yeah, all gods are good. I'm just going to put Jesus up there on the shelf. Jesus won't stay on that shelf. So God sent many prophets to them to tell them to turn from their ways, but they refused, so God gave them what they wanted. You want to serve other gods? Go, serve other gods. And God drove them into exile. How did God do this? God stirred up a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to invade Israel, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, wipe out the right worship of God, and then carry off the best and the brightest into Babylon. God told his people through the prophets that they would be in exile 70 years, basically for an entire generation. But God also prophesied to them, through the prophets, beforehand that after the 70 years, he would bring them back to Back to, uh, back to Israel and Jerusalem. If you say, try to say Israel and Jerusalem at the same time, that's how it comes out, all right? This was to show them, look, God had made a covenant with them. They had walked, walked away from the covenant. They had broken covenant, but God was faithful to his covenant. They had rejected him. He is not going to reject them. He was going to show them that he was gracious and faithful even when they were sinful and unfaithful. God was not going to give up on his people. He would not change his mind about his plan for the renewal and redemption of all the world. So here's God's people in exile. Well, while in exile, King Cyrus of Persia attacks Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. God stirs up King Cyrus to do this and to destroy Babylon. And then that is exactly how and where the book of Ezra begins. Then God stirs up the heart of this new king, Cyrus, to allow the Israelites to go back to their homeland, to return and rebuild the temple to worship their God. This, of course, is a actual historical claim, a claim about an event that is said to have happened, the Bible says it happened, in real world history. This historical claim is actually confirmed by the Cyrus Cylinder. I mentioned this in one sermon way back. In 1879, a clay cylinder was found in the foundations of Esagila, an ancient temple of Marduk. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder and today is housed in the British Museum in London. You can Google it if you want to. The Cyrus Cylinder is a clay cylinder and it's written in Babylonian script. And it is the Babylonian account of the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus in 539 B.C. In it, Cyrus claims to have restored to the conquered people their temples and religious cults and to have returned their previously deported gods and people. This is the Babylonian historical account that affirms what scripture teaches. The Bible, once again, is not a myth. It describes real history and that is confirmed by outside sources. So Cyrus gives them this edict that allows them to return to rebuild their temple. And just over 42,000 of the exiles return Jerusalem and start to rebuild the temple. This was stage one in the rebuilding process. Stage one lasted about 20 years. And it was full of all kinds of conflict. They had many adversaries. That tried to from their pagan neighbors that tried to stop their work. They also had conflict amongst themselves. If you remember, many times they gave up on the building of the temple to focus on themselves. They wanted to go build their house, so they were building really nice, fancy homes while the temple of God remained in ruins. And so, what did God do? God called prophets, right, to speak His word to them, to wake them up from their slumber, and say and, and say that very thing. Go back to work on my temple. Don't spend all your money on yourself. Get back to work. And thankfully, the people repented, and they returned back to his mission. Well, during that time, King Cyrus died, and King Darius took his place. Once again, we saw God stir the heart of the king to accomplish his specific plans in history. King Darius gave his decree that the work on the temple must be finished, and even sent Ezra the scribe to be a secretary of state and priest to improve the right worship of God in the temple. He brought a bunch of gold to beautify it. He brought priests in to serve the people. And he also told them to appoint civil magistrates and judges that would rule according to God's law. That Ezra was was commanded there and, and, and told to go back, and the people that don't know God's law... Teach them God's law so that they they know what's required of them. So we saw from this that God's desire wasn't just to have a church in society. God's desire was to have a church in society that changed society. And he wanted society to be set up in very specific ways. Okay? Then when... In what specific ways? Everything was to be done according to the will of God, according to the law of God. Now again... Law, history, poetry, prophets. When the Bible speaks of law, it's speaking of the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Listen, they were meant to take those first five books, read through them, study them, understand them, and then rightly order society based upon that law. That, That was the plan, to rebuild the society. This teaches us here, so the... Build a temple and then renew the city, right? Build a temple and then build society. This shows us that the right worship of God precedes the right ordering of society. You can't rightly order society and then reform it from the top down. No, you need to go from the bottom up. Right worship of God precedes the right ordering of society, Ezra tells us that the hand of the Lord was on them to accomplish this task. So God was blessing this work. So what we would expect is Ezra to show up on scene and be really encouraged. That's not what happens. Ezra shows up with his Bible in hand, ready, ready to preach, right? And what does he find? He does not find the idyllic scene that he had hoped for. Instead, the first thing he finds, the first thing he hears, is really bad news. The people, like sheep without a shepherd, have wandered away from their God again. They had disobeyed him and married people who worshipped other gods. And this is exactly what their forefathers had done to get them exiled to Babylon in the first place. Proverbs 26 11 says this, quote, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The people had failed to read their own story and heed its lessons. They, they, they didn't look at their forefathers and see God's blessing on them, the covenant they had made, the covenant they had broken, the covenant curses that came upon them because of their disobedience. The people failed to read their own story and now we're in the middle of it, repeating it just like their father's. So what happens? God sends a priest, Ezra. And Ezra, as a priest, stands in the gap between a holy and a righteous God who demands obedience and an unholy and unrighteous people. Ezra stands in the gap between these two people and he pleads for God's mercy to be on them. He publicly confesses his sins. He pulls his hair from his head in a display of grief and remorse. He's saying we are completely undone and deserve your wrath to sweep down upon us right now. We deserve you to wipe us off this planet. We cannot even stand before you this day because we are guilty once again of walking away from our covenant keeping God and worshiping other gods. Ezra just throws himself and the people wholly onto the mercy of God. If God is not merciful, we're doomed. Now, I think many of us presume upon the mercy of God. We think God, oh, He's all He's all love. We, are, we live in one of the most schizophrenic societies ever. We claim to want justice in our world. We claim to want justice in our world, but we want a God who's nothing but a soft, fuzzy, gushy, sentimental version of love. You cannot have love without justice. Justice is the love of God poured out on sinners. Poured out on those who disobey. Why do we want a God of love but not a God of justice? Don't we want a world that's just? Don't we want a world where where violent criminals get punished what they deserve? Don't we want a, a world where darkness is obliterated? That's what justice does. So the people here, they don't presume on the mercy of God. They say if God is not merciful, we are doomed. What they're saying is if God is just, which we know He is, because God is not a liar, God always tells the truth, God is going to punish the the wrongdoer because He's a God of love, He's going to do that. And we are guilty of wrongdoing, so we deserve the wrath of God to come against us. So we are doomed if God isn't more than just. We need Him to be merciful. It says, all the people who trembled at the word of the Lord gathered around Ezra and participated in his mourning. They began to mourn and confess their sins as well. So they weren't just saying, stop preaching, preacher. We don't want to hear it. No, no, no. They they were cut to the heart. They gathered around him and they started saying, we repent. We repent. Then the leader of the people, Shechaniah, stepped up. Now listen, we don't know nothing about this guy except for this right here. I pray we get some Shechaniahs in our church. I pray we have some men in every missional community that stand up like this. That he sees this grieving. He sees this weeping. He realizes people may they know they've sinned, but he steps up and he's read the story. He's read the covenant. He's read the Old Testament. He knows there's something to do and he knows exactly what it is to do. And it's not easy, but he's going to get up and say the hard thing. Reminds me of Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, truth at all costs, peace if possible. Truth at all costs. Peace if possible. Shekinah steps up and says this, quote, We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of the Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. There's hope There's hope right here, and the hope is written in the law. The law told us what to do here if we ever find ourselves in this situation. It wasn't enough for the people just to apologize for intermarrying and to admit their guilt. They They had sinned against the Lord. They must repent and change directions. And repentance in this situation meant send away the pagans. You cannot remain married to high-handed idol worshipers. Now, this still, it's a severe mercy, but this still is a gift of grace. This was a come to Jesus moment. This was a drawing, a a line in the sand and saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And listen, here's the deal. You either embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you worship the true God or you get to step in. That's the call. This was a gift of grace. This was a kindness of God to draw a line in the sand and say, we're not worshiping idols anymore. We're not going to be syncretistic with our faith anymore. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was a calling for men to step up and be godly men in their homes. And the wife would either follow, she would either submit and follow and worship the right God, or she was to leave. But, now I want you to imagine this. Every man is receiving this hard word, clear directions, but he's going. Well, I don't really know what she worships, or what about my eight-year-old daughter? I, I I don't. I mean, I don't know. This is a complicated process. So Ezra gives them three months. They appoint judges. They appoint elders. To, to judge every single case, to work through all the extenuating circumstances, all the different things, to call all the women before him and all the children before them and to give every single one of them an opportunity to embrace, and we're putting, embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Will you turn from your God and will you worship the one and true God? It's a complicated three-month-long process. Now, this is a really important detail that we all need to recognize. And I'm gonna try to summarize something that we call covenantal theology. And you should study this on your own when you have time. God, and many people in the church have lost this understanding, okay? God only relates to human beings through a covenant. A covenant is a formal bond. So God doesn't have informal relationships with anyone. He only relates to people through a formal bond sovereignly administered between two or more persons with attendant blessings and curses. Now, ultimately, God has only made two covenants with mankind. First one was the covenant of works given to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it was this. You can do whatever you want. Just don't eat of this one tree. If you eat of this one tree, you will surely die. It was a covenant based on their works. If they kept the covenant, it would go well for them. They would have eternal life. If they broke the covenant, they would die. That's the covenant of works. But in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit counseled together, and they wrote the story. They wrote, they made the plan, and the plan was, we're going to give Adam and Eve the covenant of works, but they're going to break it. What are we going to do? Now, listen, this is interesting. For me, it's interesting. Hopefully, it's interesting for you. For for he said in, in the Trinity, he said, We are going to give them a covenant of grace. Okay? So in the first covenant of works, it was God was only righteous, God was only just. That's it. Okay? But now in the covenant of grace, he's going to be merciful, he's going to be gracious. I want you to think about at um when the angels sinned and disobeyed God, they received judgment. They had no chance of redemption, no hope of change, no no offer of repentance. Angels got judged, and he said he created hell for the devil and his angels. Okay? So, what God does is when Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the covenant of grace, a new covenant, a covenant of grace enter into his relationship with humanity. And he, he starts out like this He says, He prophesies to Adam and Eve, and he says, From your seed, there's going to be a seed of Satan. There's going to be a seed of uh, a, seed, a, seed, a line of grace that will lead to the Messiah. But from your seed, from your lineage, will come someone who will crush the head of the serpent. That's Satan, and the, the person that's per- going to be Jesus Christ. But that s- snake will bite his heel. But his heel will crush the head of the snake. Okay. This is the beginning of the covenant of grace. Now, this is what I want you to say with. You. I'm, going to, I'm going to start. I'm going to teach you a new analogy that I've got. A metaphor here. And hopefully it won't be heretical. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying it out on you guys, okay? The covenant of grace that began right there was like a totally new operating system for our computers. You purchase a totally new operating system. But that operating system, as you get an operating system, over the years or months or however it is, you get new versions. You get new upgrades, Right? think of the covenant of grace as version 1 we get a with adam and eve in genesis 3 we get a totally new operating system but then from there that operating we get version 2 with noah right then we get version 3 With Abraham, then we get version four with Moses, then we get version five with David. Now, these were all outworking of the covenant of grace, but each version was built up and improved on the one that came before it. Now, the reason I say they're all outworking of the covenant of grace is because people try to say, like, oh, the Old Testament is just under the law and it's all works based. No, it's not. If you go and study every single one of these covenants, they were initiated by God. They were initiated by grace. They were given to undeserving sinners. There was promise of redemption. There was blood that that was shed that was covering sin. Those promises of blessings for obedience and, and curses for disobedience. They were all gracious. So they're all an outworking of the same covenant of grace. Now watch this. But when Jesus came, Jesus came as the new Adam who would obey God where Adam disobeyed. Jesus came as the true Noah, who would save his people through his life, death, and resurrection, not through a boat. Jesus came as the ultimate Abraham, who left heaven and followed God's wishes all the way to his own death, to purchase a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. Jesus was the true and better Moses, who delivered God's people from their slavery to sin, and the final David, who would reign over God's kingdom in truth and justice forever. What this means is that when Jesus came, lived his perfect life obeying the law of God fully where everyone else had failed, Jesus Fulfilled the old covenant. Jesus accomplished the covenant of grace. Then in his death he took the punishment his people deserved for breaking the old covenant. Thereby absorbing the wrath of God for his people. And securing for them God's love and pleasure. When Jesus was a re- resurrected. That was evidence that God accepted Jesus' life and death in our place. Listen. Jesus was our covenant head. He was our elected representative. He, was, he, he represented all of the elect, all of God's people. And now Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Well, this is a big question. How does the new covenant relate to the old covenant? Right? How does the New Testament relate to the Old Testament? Just what is the new covenant? The new covenant, this is interesting, this is big, It is not new in the sense of totally new operating system from the old covenant of grace. The new covenant is the covenant of grace fully realized. It is the final version of the same covenant that was given to all the patriarchs. Now, this new version has some new features, some new things in it. We have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, right? Right? But that's a sacrament. The old covenant had sacraments too. There were just circumcision and Passover, right? So we got some new things, but there's so there's some continuity between these two covenants, but there's also some discontinuity. Some features of the old remain and some are obsolete. We are told the new covenant has, quote, better promises, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says. Now, what are some of these continu- continuity and discontinuities? We know from the New Testament that all of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament is obsolete. It's been fulfilled. We no longer have to worship God in the temple or offer animal sacrifices to him or wear funny clothes or avoid shellfish. All of that was fulfilled. Now listen, all of that was fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is what makes us pure. Jesus is what makes us holy. Jesus is our final sacrifice that atones for our sins. But this is what we need to see. The moral, the moral in the Old Testament laws still is true today. You still need purified. You still need cleansed. You cannot swagger into the presence of God. That part of the Old Testament ceremonial law is still in effect. We call it the moral of the ceremonial law. It's still in effect. We just go through Jesus now. Okay. We still need a priest. That's Jesus. We still need atonement. That's Jesus. We still need blood to cover our sins. That's Jesus. We still need to be made holy. That's Jesus. And the Spirit. Do you see that? Okay. So the moral law of the Old Testament still remains. And the general equity of the civil law of the Old Testament still remains as well. What do I mean by the civil law? There's lots of civil laws in the Old Testament. Uh, Here's one example. Uh, In the Old Testament, it was was commanded when you build a house, you have to build a fence around the roof. Well, do we have to do that today? We don't have to apply it in the same way, but we still have to take the moral. Why did they have to build a railing around the roof? Because people went up on the roof. It was a flat roof. They partied up there. They had dinner up there. They did things up there. And people would fall off and die if they didn't have a railing. So they said you have to build a railing. Why? Because God is pro-life. And we are pro-life from the womb to the grave. And so guess what? We are called today to take the general equity of that law and apply it today. So every single one of us, you build a second story deck, you got to put a railing around it, right? To protect life. So yes, we don't just throw out the Old Testament. So many people have this modern-day understanding that if it's not in the New Testament, we don't have to obey it or we don't have to follow it. Well, parents, I'm going to give you some fun homework to do this afternoon. Okay? And the homework is this. There's some things commanded in the Old Testament that aren't commanded in the New Testament that we still want to obey. All right? So bestiality is called a sin, and we are to obey it in the Old Testament. Never mentioned in the New Testament. Do you really want to say, hey, we're under grace, so... Now, right? I'll, I'll let you guys go work that one out at home. Have fun. Lunchtime. Lunchtime conversation for that one, right? <clears throat> so, Paul tells us specific. So, so, we have to apply the moral equity of the civil law. Now, what we have to do when we come to this passage, and this, this is where I, 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 I built this up to, to ask this question. Is this command something that we are still to obey today? Command to divorce your wife if she will not convert or divorce your husband if he will not become a Christian. That answer is unquestionably no. We know this because Paul tells us in the New Testament under the new covenant that something has changed so that we are, if we are married to an unbeliever, we are to remain married unless they leave the marriage or commit adultery or abuse. We are to remain married to our unbelieving spouse unless they commit adultery or abuse or they leave. Well, we could say, well, what has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Testament? Well, we have better promises in this final version of the covenant. Namely, when you go to the Old Testament, you see people like Saul. The Spirit would come upon Saul, and then the Spirit would leave Saul when he disobeyed. You see, Samson, the Spirit came upon Samson, and when Samson disobeyed, the Spirit left and, and refused to repent. Samson, the Spirit left Samson. Okay? The Spirit was on people, but not in people in the Old Testament. Well, in the New Covenant, it has been fulfilled, and God, one of the promises God gave us in the Old Covenant was when the New Covenant comes, you're gonna get a new heart right? You're going to get a soft heart and the Spirit is going to come in you. And that's what we see when Jesus and the Father send the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes in us as one of the promises of the new covenant. So that a New Testament, new covenant believer cannot ever lose their salvation because the Spirit of God comes in you and will never leave you. He'll never leave you. So what Paul is arguing with, is now that you've received God himself into yourself, right, you now have a potency, of, there's a potency to your faith, there's a potency to your walk with God that's greater than the old covenant. And now, this new potency, this new spiritual reality, you are actually more likely to convert your spouse than you were under the old covenant. So you are to remain married, and you are to pray for your partner, and you are to serve your partner, and love your partner, and and... Maybe God will save your partner. So people are like, are you ever going to get to the text? Not really. (laughs) She did a good job naming them names. I don't need to go back through it. My mouth doesn't work that way. So what are we supposed to learn from this last chapter in the book of Ezra? Well, our, sim- our, our situations are similar, but not identical. So we are still commanded by God to not marry unbelievers. We are to marry only Christians. Second Corinthians 6, 14 through 18 says this. We are to come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. We're to be a holy, distinct people under our God. In that context, that makes very clear that Christians should never date, court, or marry non-Christians, full stop, flat out. Christians should never date, court, or marry unChristians. christians But this chapter goes on and doesn't just end there. It ends in a unique place. This chapter ends by naming names. And it's very uncomfortable in our society right now. And most of us aren't going to like this, but this chapter ends... By naming names. 110 names to be exact. And if you remember, well, first off, these dudes' names go down in infamy. Like, these are people who married pagans and then were unable, through their own spiritual leadership, were unable to lead them to Christ. We're unable to convince them of the goodness of Yahweh and to reject their false gods. So in one sense, this is infamous, right? Let's, this is just like, you—you. You, it's like, who were the bad leaders? Right there on the pages of scripture for all of us as a warning to all of us. But there's also some other lessons that we can learn from this. First, of the 110 men listed here, They were offenders in every level of society and Ezra lists the priests first and he lists them kind of in order of importance. Remember, when Ezra got back, he was shocked that that kind of sin in the camp was going from the top down. Well, here we have proof. We have 17 priests named. Some of these priests were from the family of the high priest we have six Levitical priests named. We have one singer named. We have three gatekeepers in the house of the Lord named. We have 83 normal folks. So if, this, so if Ezra's walking into our church, Ezra's naming pastors, he's naming deacons, he's naming kids workers, he's naming members, and he's putting their names on the bulletin board and sending out the email and letting everybody know these are the ones that couldn't convince their family to worship God. That's severe. But there's also some really encouraging news in this list as well. Ezra, Shechaniah and the people who trembled at God's word took the sin in the camp very seriously. They responded to it like a surgeon responds to a cancerous tumor. They were clear, they were direct, they were stern, and they were ready to cut it out. As a result, many children, marriages, and families were saved in this moment. We don't know exactly how many people use this moment to be saved. What we do know is that only one half of 1% of the total male population that initially returned under the decree of Cyrus had to send their wives or kids away. One half of 1%. So that means more than likely the majority of people used this moment, this stern, harsh, black and white, line in the sand moment to actually convince their family to worship God. Only a half of 1%. But there's even more grace. These men who were stupid and ignored God's law and married pagan wives and then there were poor spiritual leaders to actually convince their wife or their children to actually worship the one true God, there's still grace here because these men still did the hard thing that repentance demanded of them and sent their wives and children who refused to repent away. They still obeyed God and did the hard thing here by sending. I'm going to say it harshly so we can get out of this religious pluralistic mindset that we have that all gods are kind of nice. They sent their demon-worshipping wives and kids away. That's how you need to think of it. Other religions worship demons. (laughs) Call it pluralism. Call it secularism. Call it individualism. You call it anything with an ism on it and it's a demon for the most part. Now, thankfully, we are no longer under this version of the covenant. We are living under the new and final version. And so we do not have to send any unbelievers away who are living in our homes. Right? (laughs) Six-year-old Johnny, I don't know, good luck. (laughs) However, This text does still apply to us in some ways. We still need to be vigilant when it comes to our church. As you read the New Testament, you learn that the visible church, the church that you can see with your eyes, is made up of a mixed multitude. There are unbelievers present and there are believers present. And the only way we can tell the difference is through their profession of faith and through their obedience to the faith. So through their choices. Do they submit to the word of God? Do they teach and believe sound doctrine? Or do they teach and believe false doctrine? Do they repent of their sin and obey the commandments of God? Or do they make excuses for their sin? Do they even call things good that Scripture calls evil? In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul was about to leave the elders of some churches that he had planted to go and plant more churches and this is what he said to these elders, these pastors, before his departure. Quote, Acts chapter 20, 28 through 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, your whole church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, The apostle here is saying, I'm leaving. And when I leave, there's going to be, because the apostle has a sense of responsibility and a, and a way of doing leadership that he is okay rebuking these false teachers and knocking them down and sending them out. But when I leave, there's going to be a little bit of leadership vacuum. And you know what's going to happen? People are going to rise up. Sheep in wolves clothes, or now wolves in sheep's clothes are going to rise up from amongst your own church. And they're going to start teaching false things. And they're going to try to pull people away from the faith. Admonish them with tears. As elders in God's church, we are called, the elders of our church are called to protect our flock. Our people from false teachers. And false teachers look like everybody else. They're they're just as as nice and as cordial as anybody else. They don't come in. They don't get issued a false teacher t-shirt. Right? We don't know them. They don't come in wearing the black hat. We can notice, oh, false teacher. No, they come in looking like everybody else. Then they start spewing twisted things. And we are to rebuke these people. We are to do this by admonishing everyone with tears. That means we teach, we train, we rebuke. We argue, we podcast, we preach, we write position papers, and we try to bring correction, and we do this with tears. That means we are emotionally invested. We plead for them to believe the truth and turn away from their twisted things and to repent. And it genuinely grieves us when our people choose not to repent. When teenagers take it from the world that every teenager rebels from their parents in their teenage years, that is a worldly lie. Every teenager does not rebel from their parents, and you should not. When you sin, it does not go well for you. You're literally choosing, I'm going to spend this next next decade wrecking my life. How about not? How about not? How about obey your parents so it will go well for you? How about use wisdom while all these other morons are doing moronic things? You're actually getting ahead of them through holiness and righteousness and obedience to God's law. How about that? Because guess what? Here's the deal. Okay, we can clap for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And all those, all those folks out there being dumb, maybe they'll work for you in the future, okay? Righteousness exalts a nation. Wickedness tears it down. A wise woman builds up her own house. A foolish woman tears it down. So, it grieves the elders when teenagers say, I'm just going to be worldly for a little while. No. Not in this church or not. We will call you to repent. When people refuse to repent, it is entirely appropriate to name names and send those people away from our church membership. Paul said this to Titus, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 1 Corinthians 5, this is what Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, probably his mother-in-law. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So the people were saying like this, you know what? We're under the new covenant. The covenant is grace, not law. So it doesn't matter how you live. You, you know what? You're sinning. you're sleeping with your mother-in-law. No big deal. We're all under Grace. Paul's like, what? That's not how grace works. Grace should cause you to hate that sin and drive that sin out of your church, not welcome it in. This many churches in our city, in our world, are doing this right now, they're syncretistic. We don't care what you believe about sexuality. We don't care what you believe about gender. We don't care what you believe about life in the womb. We don't care what, what you believe about any of those things. Come on in here. All we care is that you're here. Paul goes on. For although absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment. Judgy. I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here's the idea. The church is, for, is the covenant community. The covenant has blessings and curses every single day. Every single Sunday, you come in and you hear the promises of the gospel. That's covenant blessings. God will forgive your sin. God will wash you clean. God will make you new. God will give you a new body and a new heaven and a new earth. You'll have eternal life with him. All of these are blessings of the gospel. But if you continue in your sin in an unrepentant way, then you are going to be under the curse of God. And so this is what Paul says. I'm handing this person over to Satan so that he will be out from under the covenant blessings of the covenant community, away from the church, Not hearing about the forgiveness of sins. Not hearing about the gospel. Not receiving pastoral instruction. Not being cared for by the church. So that it won't go well for him out there and he'll actually be brought to grief and mourning and repentance and come back in the community and repent. He's handing him over to Satan so Satan can wreck him so he comes back into Christ. And if he goes out and stays out, the spirit of God was never in him. And if he goes out and comes back in, the spirit of God was in him. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Do not know that, listen, here's here's the example he uses. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That leaven is alive. It's a living organism that spreads through all of the dough, right? And so sin is active, is an active agent. It spreads. And if you allow it in your community, in your family, in your church, it will spread through the whole thing. If you allow a little bit of gossip in your missional community, it will spread to fight clubs. It'll spread to huddles. It'll spread to our church. It's gotta be cut out. If you allow sexual perversion, if you allow any type of sin, it spreads. Verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Unrepentant sin. Don't even hang out with them if he says he's a Christian. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then, Paul, he gives us this principle, and he actually applies this principle to his own ministry in 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. He says this to Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. That's it, holding faith and a good conscience. All right, we're talking about theology here. We're talking about doctrine here. We're talking about his own personal beliefs here. Now, look what he says. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul names names just like they named names in Ezra. Hymenius and Alexander, he's like, they're not Christians. I've handed them over to Satan. Now, he's no doubt, as a good pastor would, he's hoping and praying that they would return to the faith. Jesus said something very similar. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone, man to man, woman to woman. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Why? Why? So harsh, so stern, so black and white. Naming names. Because our calling is the same as the calling for those in the Old Testament. We are to be a people distinct from the world. We are to be a holy nation. We are to be a people of His own possession. We are to look differently than our neighbors. We are God's people. Saved by God's grace. Given totally new identities as his children. And we do things differently as part of God's family. Every house has house rules. Well, our house rules are the laws of God. We do things the way he commanded us to. We obey his word. When we don't, we confess our sins and repent. We seek forgiveness towards those we have wronged. We give grace to others as we receive grace from God. We love as he has loved us. A church that allows unrepentant members to continue on in their sin is on a slippery slope into lukewarmness and compromise, which will lead to their eventual downfall. Jesus promises any lukewarm believers he will spit out of his mouth. All across our city, churches are full. Actually, church members lists are full of people who are unrepentant. They're on the list. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. They haven't been baptized. They they live in active, unrepentant sin. And God's judgment is coming against those churches and they will die out. We're not going to be one of them. Listen, our desire, we we make it pretty plain. We want to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, and renew our city. That means we want to have a society-wide impact on our city, okay? But here's the deal. We will never have a Christian society if we don't first have a Christian church. And you're not a Christian if you're not worshiping the Lord Jesus, confessing your sins, repenting, and then wanting to obey him in all of life. You're not. I know somebody told you if you prayed a prayer, you became a Christian. That wasn't true. He lied to you, okay? That guy lied to you, right? That's not what you do. Do you need to profess with your mouth and believe in your heart to be saved? Yes, absolutely. But that person continues to profess and continues to believe and continues to obey the Lord. So, we have to do this. We have to do church discipline. Not right now. I'm not about to name your name. People are getting real nervous. Oh no, my wife! What'd you tell him? What'd you tell him? No, not right now. But we do have to. We ha- at, at times we do. At times we do. But what I want to how I want to finish this this morning is I want each and every one of us to consider ourselves this morning before we come to the table and partake of the covenant meal that God has given us as family. See, there's still only two ways to relate to God. Through the covenant of works, where you try to obey God, you try to do everything good that you possibly can, you try to outwork your bad deeds with your good deeds, and you're relating to the covenant of works. Every other religion on the planet is under that category. They're trying to relate to God under the covenant of works, whether it be prayers, rituals, fasts, bowing down, whatever it is. No one can be justified, made right with God through the covenant of works because we're all sinners. And so there's only one other option, and that is to come under the covenant of grace with a new covenant head, Jesus Christ, who obeyed where you failed. Everything that you should have done, he did. He did for you perfectly. Then, he took the punishment that you deserve for your sin. He took the full wrath of God to divert it from you and to give you only His favor and only His blessing. And that covenant comes with new promises—promises promises that the Holy Spirit will come into you, give you a new heart. The promises for you and your children—it's a covenantal bless. There's covenantal blessings. The promises reaches forward to the new heavens and the new earth, where God's going to make everything new. So this morning, we come to this table and we're partaking and we're we're working out those covenant blessings. And we're remembering the only reason I can come to God is because Jesus Christ died for me and Jesus Christ rose for me. Now listen, if you've never believed that, don't come take the elements this morning. Take Christ by faith. Believe that. Believe that Jesus Christ did that for you. But if you have taken him by faith, partake of this meal that proclaims the Lord's death till he returns and worship him in joy this morning. Father God, we thank you for your grace. Oh, God of grace. God of grace. God that gives us blessings that we do not earn, blessings that we could never earn, blessings that Jesus Christ earned for us. Father, would you make us a people who hate our sin, love our Savior, and want to worship you with all our life, would you spread the fragrance of your gospel through our city, the impact of the gospel through our city. As we come to your table this morning, may we eat, take the elements, worship you, and proclaim your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.